0: Viserys has an ego, he's got a great tragedy in his life, but also there's a part of him that's going, how am I going to be remembered in hundreds of years? They don't remember peaceful kings, they remember warriors, they remember tyrants. That Iron Throne is the most dangerous seat in the realm, and he understands what the throne does to people's egos. He understands the game of thrones.
1: Welcome back to another episode of West of Westeros, Entertainment Weekly's Game of Thrones podcast. I'm Nick Romano, a senior writer here at EW, and this week marks the return of my co-host, Lauren Morgan, <laughs> whom I thought I lost to Star Wars in EW's Take of a Dispatch team. Lauren, welcome back.
2: Thank you. Sorry, I was off on another uh, podcasting assignment last week uh, to a galaxy far, far away. But I have returned and I did miss out on talking about uh, episode three with you guys, but I did listen to it and I did enjoy it. But I was like, I wish I could comment on this, but I'm not here. So, but hey, I'm here <laughs> for episode four. We've got plenty of things to say. So I am excited to be back.
1: Yeah, this is another good episode to be talking Mm -hmm. about. Um, But before we kind of dig into all of this, I wanted to chat with you about something that has been kind of dominating TikTok and Twitter somewhat. Um, Fans are convinced that they've figured out what the next Game of Thrones coffee cup snafu (laughs) is on House (laughs) of the Dragon. I think you've seen this, Lauren, right? Yes, I
2: have. Yes, I have.
1: Yeah, so anyone who hasn't been um, paying attention to what we're talking about and doesn't have a clue about what we're talking about. In episode three of House of the Dragon, um, during the scene where King Viserys is having a private conversation with his daughter, Rhaenyra, he first hands a letter um, to one of his footmen for delivery, and people notice that two of his fingers were coated In some kind of green finger gloves, um, which, you know, anyone who's kind of in movies or TV Mm -hmm. or knows about them knows that that's for visual effects, um, to be put in later in post-production and at this point in time Viserys like doesn't have two of his fingers because of the infection that he got from the cut on the Iron Throne but that the green still kind of made it yeah. into the final episode <laughs> Lauren what did you think about that? I thought
2: that it? was funny I saw it yesterday I saw that the, I didn't notice it when they I was watching the episode light of on Sunday night and I wasn't noticing because you know this scene is actually very dark uh, so I mean I can kind of understand how they missed it because it's like uh it, it wasn't really until and I we did a story on it uh, and I went and uh, screen grabbed the thing myself and when I lightened it up in photoshop I was like there you go there's the green um so I could see how they perhaps might have missed that in their post production but it's just i think hilarious that they had another one of these incidents after the infamous coffee cup showing up in uh in the game of thrones episode with uh, like john and uh daenerys Have we ever found out who left that coffee cup or is it still is still being everyone being like, not me about it?
1: Amelia Clark um, actually told Jimmy Fallon on The Tonight Show in 2019. I mean, this is according to her that it was Mm -hmm. Conleth Hill, the actor who plays Varys. She says, we had a little party before the Emmys recently. And Conleth, who plays Varys, who's sitting next to me in that scene he pulls me aside and he's like, Amelia, I've got to tell you something. I've got to tell you something. <laughs> the coffee cup was mine. <laughs> so that's according to me, Amelia uh, Clark. Um, uh, it was Varys.
2: It was Varus, The master of whispers managed to get it in the shot. For some reason, the last time I heard it, I thought it was Kit Arrington's, but I know there was a lot of uh, a lot of not me amongst the the people in that cast in that specific scene, so that's really funny. but anyway, going back to this little um mess up, you know as both of us have seen uh the episodes up till episode six um, and we saw a lot of stuff with like temp FX in them and a lot of mm. it was just like you didn't see anything but there was there is one scene later on where a character has an entirely green arm because they didn't. <laughs> do the (laughs) fx work on it yet so when i saw that i was like oh it's just like the green from the arm so you know so that was uh something where i was just like yeah i guess they missed that shot in their uh, fx but oh well i just thought it was pretty funny so i'm pretty sure they will remove it uh as quickly as possible from uh hbo max you know as soon as they can but for now it's still there
1: our old buddy, um, James Hibbard, who's now at The Hollywood Reporter, he actually confirmed um, with the representatives for HBO that they are going to fix that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it almost wouldn't be Game of Thrones without some kind of... I, I, <laughs> I'm choosing to think of it as like the ultimate Easter egg for Yeah, fans it's just who... <laughs> like,
2: you know... Oh, but I remember like there was an episode of The Mandalorian where there was accidentally someone in a pair of jeans in one of the shots. There was like a fight going on with a bunch of Mandalorians and someone's like what's that PA in the jeans doing in the background? And then they had to remove (laughs) the the PA from the jeans. So it happens, you know, these are complicated productions. When you have dragons, you know, sometimes pinkies get missed and all that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah. So now let's start turning our attention to episode four of House Mm -hmm. of the Dragon. And for anyone listening in, you know, uh, the rules kind of remain the same. Our first portion of the podcast is just going to be talking about House of the Dragon from a show perspective Anything that has already aired on the series up to this point, including episode four, as well as anything that's mentioned in the press is fair game to talk about. So if you haven't watched episode four, you may not want to listen to this episode just yet. And then later on, we're going to be switching it up a little bit to more of a spoiler conversation and talking about House of the Dragon as it relates to George R. R. Martin's books and where this is all kind of taking us. And then the third section is going to be dedicated to an interview with a member of the cast and crew of House of the Dragon. This week, we will be sharing excerpts from my interviews with Matt Smith and Patti Considine, who play Prince Daemon Targaryen and King Viserys I Targaryen. Now on to episode four. I mean, Lauren, we, we got another time jump here. We did. I was, I was trying mm-hmm. to dissect like really specifically how long it's been um since episode three I, we know that rainier targaryen she is now sort of on her tour of westeros to go find herself a man
2: find herself a hubby baby you know yeah. and mm-hmm.
1: she's cutting this tour two months early so we yeah. you know she's like been on this train for a while i mean were mm-hmm. there any kind of like more specific details that you picked up on
2: i know there was one point where uh daemon said uh I think he said it had been four years since he had seen her and that she had blossomed in that time, which we're going to get to. Um, so like that was it. But it's like also like, you know, uh, Allison's not pregnant anymore. She's there's the baby and there's another baby that's uh, not Aegon. Uh, she does not particularly look uh, like she has taken to motherhood at all during this period of time, which I noticed. And it really seems like uh, Viserys is uh, about at the end of his rope with Rhaenyra. He's just like, lady, daughter of mine, pick a husband, pick any husband, just pick a husband. He's kind of like my mom, you know, when my husband and I had been together for like nine or ten years. but It's like, what are you two doing? Just get married, you know? <laughs> so Viserys <laughs> so, is just like, well, you just get married. Uh, and it, it seems like Alicent was, uh, you know, feeling that as well <laughs> a little bit. But it seems like she was a little jealous that Renera got to take this like tour of the uh, Men of the Seven Kingdoms. but. What did you think about that? Yeah, I
1: mean, what I kind of really loved about this episode is kind of the juxtaposition between Rainiera's experience and mm-hmm. Alicent's experience. Yeah. Um, you know, when they finally kind of reconnect after Rhaenyra cuts her torch sh- short, there's this scene in King's Landing and it it seems like there's no more strife or animosity between yeah. them, which I thought was interesting. So they've kind of apparently patched th- some things up kind of in between yeah. the time jump, but she makes mention of this fact. Um, yeah. It, it, she mentions it kind of really offhandedly and it's something to the effect of, you know, how bad it would be to be imprisoned in a castle and just be forced to like churn out heirs. Yeah. And like, Clearly that was something that she said without even thinking of it because I mean, just the look on Allison's face, like that is her lot in life and yeah. she is kind of stuck there. And I also think it's really important to remember when thinking about this tour of suitors is Viserys and Rhaenyra's argument from last episode when Rhaenyra was like, if you were marrying for duty, you would have married Lena Valerian, but instead mm-hmm. you married for love, which is Alicent. Mm-hmm. And so this is sort of her father's own effort to be like, okay, you want to marry for love? Go ahead, pick your own suitor.
2: Yeah, um, go find someone who uh, makes your pulse race. She finds somebody, but it's not exactly <laughs> a good suitor. So
1: I know. I did a kind of also liked um, kind of hearing some other names, like house names, mm-hmm. um, sort of in um, this like opening sequence that we get, we hear mention of a Lord Dandarian, Oh yeah um, w- which was fun. And like mm-hmm. um, his kind of territory is like close to areas where he mentioned, he makes mentions of Dorn incursions, you know, yeah. which, so geographically that house is kind of always,
2: mayor- always sometimes. With, yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> they're they're, always, o- they're always
2: dealing with the Dornish incursions. And I thought, I also thought it was like one of the, the young man was from like house Blackwood. And I, I I think it's like in Feast of Crows where it's like Blackwood and Bracken and they were just at each other all the time, like the, you know, Westerosi, Hatfield and McCoys. So like when I heard Blackwood, like the Blackwood and and the fact that they were getting into fights, I was like, yeah, seems like kind of standard for your house, you know? So I thought that was kind of interesting.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Blackwood's, the house Blackwood was like even going super far back, in Westerosi history, I mean, they were considered kind of like kings and heroes of the age of heroes, Mm -hmm. which I thought was really interesting considering the fact that HBO filmed a completely different pilot for a completely different Game of Thrones spinoff that never ended up moving forward, but it was to take place in the age of heroes. And so I'm curious if this was kind of a call out to, I don't know, what we kind of lost I also wanted to point out this one scene, um, again, sort of as Rhaenyra is kind of rolling her eyes at all these suitors presenting Mm -hmm. themselves before her, a little fight breaks out between the Blackwood kid and one of the Baratheon kids. Um, The Baratheon one dies. He's slaughtered, gutted, eviscerated um, by the Blackwood kid. (laughs) And um, Rhaenyra looks back and Mm -hmm. she's kind of focused on that moment until Sir Criston Cole is like, look away, princess. And it really reminded me, it felt like a throwback to Daenerys in Game of Thrones, like right as her own brother was about to be killed. um, Yeah. Yeah, and... And then Jorah's uh,
2: trying to prevent her from not looking.
1: Yeah, and I believe he says something to the effect of, like, look away, my queen. And she's like, no, I want to see this. So I (laughs) felt like that was also kind of an echo of Game of Thrones, one of those kind of small things.
2: And and maybe Renera should have considered House Blackwood, considering he seemed to be a bit of a fighter and maybe, maybe he was kind of a maybe he was more than meets the eye.
1: <laughs> yeah. And one more thing about Blackwood, I mean his name is Lucas Blackwood, mm-hmm. um, this guy. And I think he's like a direct descendant of another Blackwood that we kind of meet at least in the novels. Um mm-hmm. there's a there's a Lucas Blackwood at the Red Wedding um in a song of ice and fire books and he's killed there which i thought was also I'm like oh is this is this meant to be kind of like a really specific easter egg to that kind of event which i thought yeah. was interesting
2: the blackwoods enjoy renaming their uh their progeny as much as you know the targaryens like to name people aegon you know <laughs> it's just yeah. like L- lucas is the aegon of house blackwood
1: yeah, absolutely. Also, we kind of learn that as Prince Damon kind of returns to King's Landing and makes amends with his brother, Lord Corliss did not come with him instead he's kind of they've all just kind of completely abandoned the stepstones and they think oh we'll just stake these two thousand dead corpses to the sand as a warning to anybody who might take it over but for anyone who's kind of read the books we know that may or may not be the case (laughs) which i thought was really funny um that's a very minor spoiler and i don't think the show is actually going to address that but so Corlys returns to Driftmark, and it's actually mentioned in the small council meeting that there are rumors that he is planning to marry off Lena Velaryon to the Sea Lord in the Free City. It was
2: his, it was the Sea Lord's son, yeah.
1: Yeah. So, which I thought, I mean, and that also, Otto brings that up again, and it's also putting pressure on Rhaenyra to marry, which is kind of this... Again, it kind of goes back to Rhaenyra's experience versus Allison's experience, which I thought this whole kind of episode was about. I mean, Lauren, what were your sort of thoughts on the Rhaenyra versus Alicent? I
2: thought it was really fascinating. And, you know, I've watched the episode a couple of times now, but it, it was like really like you, you see Alicent and she did her duty. She put on her mother's dress. She basically seduced the king and made herself queen. But you can tell she is not a happy person. Like she does not seem to be taking to motherhood she like likes viserys well enough but you can't say that i think he's setting her heart aflame you know so she's like she did her duty she you know she's been she's pumping out airs she's letting uh, viserys do the rumpy pumpy on her whenever he wants uh and and, um so you know she's kind of like this is my life but you know she expresses to Renera that she feels lonely. That, you know, n- that she doesn't feel like Lady Allison anymore. She feels like the Queen. So you feel like, you know, that must be very isolating for her. Uh, and especially like since this, for her, is not particularly a love match. It's like, he's he's fine. He's a totally nice husband. There's a lot of worse husbands she could have. But her heart is not super involved in this. And then, then you know, you could kind of see like there's some tension with Rhaenyra, who was you know, she's not doing her duty. She's not marrying. She hasn't started to have a baby. She like, and, and based on her mother's experience, she has no desire to, you know, she saw the horrifying way that her mother met her hen. So she doesn't want to get married and die on the child bed like her mother did. But you could see like, you know, Allison's a little bit like you have a duty and I did my duty and you should start doing your duty. Uh, it seems to be sort of threaded throughout all of their things. And I think, this sort of conflict that comes up later on when uh, the whole issue with Damon shows up and her getting caught someplace she's not supposed to be. I think Allison's really like, you know, Hey, I'm holding up my end of this bargain. What are you doing? Like you, you have every choice I do not have. And you're just still like just frittering it away. I think she thinks like maybe Renner is just being kind of a brat. That's all the kind of yeah. sense I sort of sense about it. And yeah. there is a little bit being a little bit bratty. Like, I understand her, but she's being a little bratty. It's like, you know, she's not really trying to find any good quality. Like, I'm sure the one of the, the that Jason Lannister, he would have been a perfectly fine husband, but she's like, no. So she's yeah. turning down everybody.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I really agree with you. And, you know, at this point, we know that Rhaenyra and Allison are going to eventually have a major falling out that yeah. kind of really fuels um the civil war to yeah. come and everything. And I thought this episode did a really great job in really highlighting like reasons for that strife. I mean, as you said, Allison is very isolated. She's now it seems like she's really depressed. Yeah. And on top of that, I think like the cuts, um the camera cuts between you know Rhaenyra and sort of the pillow house um and you know the face of alicent as she's forced to do her womanly wifely duties. duty with her yeah.
2: septic gangrenous husband <laughs> which yeah. is just like <laughs> like i think patty Constantine on his own is perfectly appealing man but like you know when you just see all the like cuts and like the wounds and he's just turning black you're just like, yeah, bah. yeah, I would probably not be super appealed to have that in my bed right now. So, yeah.
1: And there were uh, two echoes cool. um, to like previous episodes that I thought were really interesting in a previous episode, Otto, I think, I think it's episode two Otto like sees, um, you know, all of like the bloody marks on Allison's fingers where she's been kind of picking at them and chewing mm-hmm. them away. And he tells her, you know, why are you destroying yourself? And at this point, like other people, are like really destroying her body. Like yeah, Patty, much. uh not Patti, uh, Viserys in like a very <laughs> physical way, you know, is making her, not making her, but like, you know, she's churning out all of these airs that is having a immediate and fierce impact on her body. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that kind of forewarning or uh, foreshadowing, maybe it was, that Otto kind of said is having a very literal kind of effect on Alicent now. And then also there's a line where Rhaenyra tells Daemon, she says, my mother was made to produce heirs until it killed her. I won't subject myself to that same fate. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a little bit later, she says, I have no desire to live in fear, um, which I thought was an echo to what Masaria told Daemon at Dragonstone right before she left. Yeah. She was just like, I joined you to be liberated from fear. I didn't join you for like your wealth or status yeah, or anything all this like other that. stuff.
2: The conversation that uh, Damon and Rhaenyra had when he returned, and I and I thought that like that you know that when he did show up at the throne room and he like he tossed the sword and was like added to the throne and sort of stuff like that. Like I thought there was a ton of fascinating stuff going on between Damon and Viserys in this episode, but I really do think the crux of this episode was what was going on between Damon and Rhaenyra, and like that conversation they had in Valerian when you know when they were both alone. And I think he kind of saw that, you know, she was kind of living a little bit in fear and that she also just didn't understand quite what she was turning her nose down in. And he had this like a great line where it's like, if you live in fear, you don't really experience life's pleasures. And I think that was a little bit where he was getting into the corrupting influence of her on this one was where I think he just was like, you know, he just looked at her as like, you're a young girl and you're not really a woman yet. And once you understand what being a woman entails, you know, you might change your mind about all this other stuff. So I think that was kind of a really interesting uh, aspect to it as well like what did you think of that whole sort of section
1: yeah no i i listen we know targaryens are messy um yeah. you know Alison was, was even very has very
2: messy in this one <laughs> yeah
1: allison even has a line later on in the episode when she's confronting Rhaenyra that i know you targaryens have queer customs uh-huh. um meaning incest <laughs> <laughs> i mean we knew it was coming yeah. um This has happened multiple times throughout the Targaryen line. Yeah. Um, It's very complicated. I always like to uh, pay attention to all those like plays within the show. We kind of got them sprinkled out through Game of Thrones and we got another one here in House of the Dragon. Um, I was trying to dissect it for a little bit deeper meeting, but I I think it kind of goes back a little bit to what Christian, um, our guest host on last episode said about the Targaryen's relationship to the small folk. Mm-hmm. Um and which was visualized perfectly when Caraxes just like brought its foot down <laughs> on that guy that soldier who was like save me Prince Damon save me squash and Prince Damon's said.
2: like I got other stuff to do
1: yeah and um, Rhaenyra kind of seeing this reaction from this kind of street level play which poked fun at sort of the succession struggle The yeah. response was you know I don't care about the small folk who cares about them yeah. And Damon reminds her. She's like, oh, "Well, if you're gonna rule these people, you're gonna have to care about."
2: Them. Yeah, you really are. And I think that's always sort of a fascinating thing about Damon is that he has, you know, he has his hand on the pulse of the small folk more than I think, like, definitely more than Viserys does, obviously. And I think he was trying to get Rhaenyra's attention that like the small folk don't like you right now. Like, you might think you have, you know, you're the heir to the to the Iron Throne. But the small folk don't really like you. And that's something you've got to pay attention to. And it really is like if, she, if Rhaenyra had gotten married and had started producing heirs, she probably would have strengthened her claim a lot quicker to the Iron Throne. But it's sort of like this hesitancy on her part to do certain aspects of her duty has kind of like turned her from like the realm's delight. Like she used to be considered the realm's delight. Everyone loved her. And now it's just like, you know, she's being made fun of in the streets of King's Landing, you know, Uh, you know, in Flea Bottom. So it's kind of it's very interesting for her to see that and her reaction to it. And then also sort of Damon's reaction to it. Like, yeah, of course, you're not popular. You're a woman like that kind of stuff. So I thought that was a really interesting scene. Between the Yeah. Two of
1: them. So let's talk about this section of the show a little bit mm-hmm. more. Um, and we're not like fully kind of like in the book spoilers conversation yeah. yet. But let's bring in the books in a non spoilery way, <laughs> just so, yeah. like really mm-hmm. as it relates to this particular sequence of events, which I find makes it a lot more interesting. So later this one night, Rainier returns to her bedchambers, and she finds a mysterious bag that's full of boy clothes, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, And she has a letter, a little note from Damon, and it's really a map of where she can find this secret passage in her room that brings her down all the way beneath the castle and out to kind of meet Damon, who's also incognito. And I loved also the visual similarity between Rhaenyra and Arya Stark when she Mm -hmm. kind of dresses as a boy to to escape King's Landing, albeit under very different circumstances than Rhaenyra.
2: But I think it's also like interesting, like, oh yeah, those secret passages, they were there for a really long time and lots of people were using them for all sorts of reasons. Reasons, so yeah
1: so kind of following what Damon tells rainera about you know how she could possibly miss out on a lot of pleasures in life he brings her to a pillow house where mm-hmm. she sees all these people having sex and he's really exposing her to this world and then something happens <laughs> where they start macking on each other real bad <laughs> uncle and niece full yeah, targaryen and niece. incest mm-hmm. um But he stops himself.
2: Yeah, that was fascinating.
1: Yeah, he really stops himself and he walks away and she's flabbergasted and honestly pissed off by the whole experience. And then she goes back to her room where Sir Kristen Cole, the hottie from Dorne, is standing outside (laughs) her room. Uh Yeah, and she is still very revved up by being in the pillow house and she wants to get it on. And so she turns to Kristen Cole and... So we also have to remember that Sir Kristen Cole he had to take vows to mm-hmm. like be in the King's Guard and especially serve as Rainier's own personal bodyguard kind of thing. And so this is a big deal that he has slept with her now and taken her mm-hmm. maidenhood and all of this. And I thought that scene was really interesting because like as they're disrobing, it almost looks like both of them are kind of bowing to each other. Yeah. Um and both of them are kind of really inexperienced in this whole thing. I thought it just made the situation, (laughs) I don't know, really relatable almost. Um, What did you think about this?
2: I thought it was really interesting. Like I thought both scenes were really interesting and just want to note that uh, Claire Kilmer, there was a female director for this episode. So, and it's interesting because there was, a lot of sex in Game of Thrones that I never thought was particularly sexy, but there were some scenes in here. I was like, Oh yeah, this is kind of, this is a little, this is a little steamy here. Um, And it's like, I thought, first of all, like the, the Damon, stuff was like first of all damon if you're gonna do this don't do it in a room full of people what are you doing just take a walk through take go into a private room the head, no there must be so part of was like damon why are you doing this in front of a bunch of people like like this is crazy but it was interesting where it's like you know he's trying like he's seducing her and she's getting into it and then all of a sudden damon's just like what the hell am i doing and just sort of stops and i thought that was interesting because i think he re- like damon really does care for Rhenera. He really like he cares about her and Viserys, and basically, like nobody else in the entire world, those are the two people he cares about the most. And we know that he is way more into the traditions of his house than his brother sort of seems to be. Like, you know, when the Otto suggests it, and uh, baby Aegon get betrothed, he's like, Yeah, no, and Damon's more just like, you know, house Targaryen, like, he doesn't think that Viserys is you know, leading House Targaryen in the way it should be. And I think he looks at Renera and thinks this is someone who would. And he says it a little bit later on, we'll get to it. Like, I think he thinks that if they joined together, they could restore House Targaryen to the level it should be at. But it, it was really fascinating when Damon just sort of stopped himself and was just like, no, I shouldn't do this. And, um, you know, and for someone who is supposedly not a man with a ton of honor, You know, he stopped himself, but the Kingsguard, Kristen Cole, he went all the way, baby. Um, You know, even though and and it's interesting with Kristen, especially like another (laughs) small
1: folk, you know, because he's common born.
2: Yeah, it's like Damon and Renera have been always raised to think that they are exceptional. They are Targaryens. They are God's chosen people. And so they kind of take their privilege for granted because they're just like, yeah, I'm a Targaryen, you know, suck it, man. But like Kristen Cole is really part of the small folk. This is like the biggest honor his family has ever gotten, the fact that he's in the Kingsguard. So for him to make this choice, it's way more risky for him to do this because it's like the honor of his entire family rests on his shoulders. But he does it because, you know, it, it, it seems like he really, you know, he cares about Rhaenyra and I don't know if it was just crime of opportunity or whatever. And that's one of the thing where I I wish we did see a little bit more about sort of like a buildup in the last couple of episodes where it was like, you know, a little bit more of like a growing feeling between the two of them. Like we knew that Rhaenyra thought he was hot, but we didn't really get to see a lot coming from his side of it a little bit. Like, I think we could have seen a little bit more from, you know, him being tempted and that kind of stuff. So when this happened, it was like, oh yeah, this is like the culmination and this is where I think, like, probably the the time jumps are kind of hurting it. If, mm. I don't know if you feel the same way, but I thought the whole the intercutting of Damon and Renera with the Alison and Vicera scene and and then like the Kristen and that where it's sort of just like saying like the different ways that they were seeing a, like a woman dealing with her pleasure and it being thwarted. And then that kind of stuff. I thought the whole thing was kind of really kind of a fascinating couple of scenes. Yeah. One thing that's really interesting, I think, about both of these two scenes, and I know we're not quite in the book section yet, um, but this is not really going to be like, you know, book spoilers. But in the In Fire and Blood, it was always like quite kind of supposed that something had happened between Damon and Renera, And it was actually a lot more torrid in what they thought happened in the book that like, Damon had been kind of doing this sexy time stuff with her every place and all over the place and, you know, kind of getting very, very debauched. And uh, so it was kind of here where it was like, okay, there was a little sexy time stuff going on between these two. But it was not, you know, it was just this kind of one time. And it wasn't like this had been going on for like weeks and months. And she was really just, you know, being deflowered all over the place. So I thought that was kind of interesting just to confirm, like, yeah, there was some stuff going on, but it wasn't really what some of the septinus or mushroom uh, had said it was in the book. The other thing was, is that something had happened between Renera and Kristen Cole, but there w- it was like, it was like they were, he was like her sworn sword. And then at one point there was something that happened and he no longer was. And they supposed that there was, a, it was a love affair that gone wrong, that he loved her, that she loved him. Blah, 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 blah. So this is also like we've got two confirmations that Damon had done something with Rainera and then also Kristen Cole had done something with her. So I thought that was an interesting like confirmation of, oh, finally, we know what happened between these this uh, this weird little triangle going on here. And, uh, you know, and you see how the way this uh, will fall out as well.
1: And uh, speaking of, you know, the history of Game of Thrones gaffes, um, we're currently (laughs) having one ourselves. Of course, a UPS truck has parked itself right outside my window. So if you're hearing any beeping, that's what that is. Yes, we are hoping
2: this will go away, but you know.
1: Love this is I love the trials and tribulations of working from home working out. Well, there
2: there was the time when we were recording the Star Wars podcast and my neighbor was blasting Genesis at top volume and I had to go tell them to please turn that off. Um, But you know these these are the perils of not being in an actual recording studio. But we're we will soldier on. So uh, Nick, what did you particularly think of these scenes and how it reflected on the book?
1: What I'm kind of really interested in, well, first of all, to kind of answer your question, I, I kind of loved it because we did, as you said, we got two different accounts of what kind mm-hmm. of happened during this time. Um, but And now kind of the reality of it is that, oh, both were kind of true, but also mm-hmm. not really. Like, this is really what happened. What I really find interesting about this whole episode is it plays into the enigma of Damon Targaryen. Um, oh, absolutely. Matt, Matt Smith said something sort of in my interview with him for EW's House of the Dragon cover story and, and kind of saying that, you know, if the gods toss a coin in the air for the birth of every Targaryen, Damon's coin is still flipping like you really mm-hmm. don't know what side he's on. And so I wanted to ask you, Lauren, or I wanted to kind of open it up for to the conversation, because obviously, we know and anyone who's read um, George R. R. Martin's Fire and Blood and the Dance of the Dragons chapters knows certain things happen. But right now, like at least as was set up in that play by the small folk, the question of succession is really going back and forth between Aegon, Rhaenyra and Daemon, like mm-hmm. which one of these people are going to be taking the throne. now? I think, kind of, you know, not getting into the books yet, I I wonder if the case can be made here for both Damon wanting the throne and also not wanting the throne. And I think this episode kind of played a little bit with that. Like, if you had to take the stance that, okay, Damon is after the throne, what Mm -hmm. evidence do we have in this episode to suggest that?
2: I think he thinks that Viserys is a weak king, he's damaging house targaryen damon for all of his egomania on his own front cares about his house cares about the strength of his house so i think he's just sort of thinks that viserys is in the way right now and that and, and that there's that scene later on when viserys confronts him and damon basically is like just give her to me give her to me we'll join in the tradition of our house and we will make this house what it should be there's the balance of Daemon cares about Rhaenyra, but he cares about House Targaryen, and he thinks that the only way House Targaryen could be strong is the union of him and Rhaenyra. And I think Viserys thinks that Daemon is just using Rhaenyra to get to the throne, but I think it's way more complicated than that because I do think that Daemon really does care for her and does really, th- you know, think she has the potential to be a great leader. And I think he just thinks that this whole situation with Viserys and Alicent is just choking kind of the life out of her and i think he thinks if she marries me then we can she can be truly the queen that she needs to be and uh, yeah maybe i'll be on the throne as well but you know i think that's sort of the complicated feeling that he has and i think matt smith does a really good job in playing like all of those different shades where it's like sometimes damon's like kind of selfless sometimes he's a selfish bastard he's a really complicated interesting character so far i think he's like the most interesting character on the show but i don't know how you're feeling about that
1: yeah oh no i think he's doing an incredible job in this role he's living for it yeah um and when i think about you know the case for damon not wanting the throne Mm -hmm. um i thought it was really interesting to look at that scene that final confrontation between him and viserys like right before viserys banishes him away Mm -hmm. um to look at it as oh he's he might be lying to viserys to kind of protect rainera in some way Mm -hmm. um and also kind of giving him an out like hey these rumors are already out here yeah. Why don't we just kind of <laughs> keep it in the family? <laughs> yeah.
2: If if we got married together, it wouldn't matter. Like, who cares? Like, you know, she'd be married, it would be to, in the tradition of our house. Like, this is two birds with one stone, just give her to me. And all of these problems would go away. And Viserys is kind of like, yeah, no, I'm not doing that. But in some respect, you look at it, and you're like, Yeah, maybe that would have been the best idea. Like, he would have solved an issue with both of these two people who are vexing him constantly. But I I think he's just a little bit like, you know, he can never really quite trust his brother as much as he does love him. But he just can't trust him.
1: We're going to take a quick break. And when we're back, we're going to bring in the books and have a little bit more of a spoilery conversation. I wanted to talk about Masaria, who is also this very enigmatic kind of character. You don't really know what's going on with her yet. But we get this scene where Damon is super hungover Mm -hmm. at this pillow house and Masaria wakes him up. And we find out that Masaria has been Otto's source for a lot of... Information about what's going on in King's Landing. A foot soldier who you know wakes Otto in the middle of the night. He tells him he's like, "Oh, we heard word from the White Worm, which yeah. is her moniker in the books. That's sort of uh, the name that she has as the Mistress of Whisperers, um, sort of in King's Landing." And I thought that was really interesting because she is a character that is, I don't know, maybe in Fire and Blood and the story is there like a handful of times. Yeah,
2: not much at all.
1: Yeah. So I'm wondering if this is kind of um, the show's way of making her a much more prominent character. And some details um, that I'd like to share for my set visit that I thought made this a little bit more interesting I was present for the filming of this scene between Damon and Masaria, mm-hmm. and um, the call sheet mentioned that the boy, one of her, you know, little birds who kind of tracks Damon and Rhaenyra, and then reports to Otto, and then eventually back to Masaria. He's mentioned as a lysine boy. Oh, um, interesting which I thought was cool because, you know, after the events of episode two, when Masari is really pissed off, she's supposed to go back to lease. Um, Mm -hmm. That's sort of what the books mention, And so the fact that that background is kind of coming into play here, clearly, she's kind of, broadening her prospects beyond being a prostitute in King's Landing and she's now kind of creating this industry of secrets <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the mistress she's, of whispers she's like the
2: proto at this point you know she's getting her little birds all over the place and causing trouble and it's interesting cuz in the book at this point where it's like you know she was supposedly pregnant and then she was heading back you know and then Damon was just kind of constantly against viserys from that point on if i'm remembering my my reading properly um, so I'd say yeah, they're really expanding her role in here and in causing trouble for you know, because it's like her little bird didn't go and tell Otto this stuff. Renara would have probably gotten away with it, so would have Damon. And Damon had just been welcomed back into the fold, you know. He had been you know pretty much given almost a king's welcome coming home, and he literally messed it up so immediately. <laughs> like it's just like, hi guys, now you're going. You know, it's like in and out the door within like 24 hours. So. Perhaps, uh, Damon should have slowed his role a little bit that, but you know, and then it's also interesting that, like, Miseria, who is his kind of downfall here, because she's, she basically rats his uh, behavior out. Whereas yeah. she probably wouldn't have before.
1: And I'm wondering how active of a schemer she is. Like, is she yeah. more, is she going to become sort of like a little finger figure mm. who is kind of pulling strings in the background for her own benefit? Or is she really just more like Varus who is kind of, you know, just doing her job, doing whatever auto kind of asks. Yeah. Um, and I guess the jury's still out. I mean, I really yeah. hope to see more of her. Not necessarily hear more of that accent, but see uh, yeah, more
2: that's of that's her. the one thing. Every time she shows up on screen, I'm like, oh, that accent. So it's really difficult to pay attention to what she's doing because you're just like, who uh, let this accent go on? <laughs> that's the one complication. And we probably could get into talking about Otto's whole role in this and how Viserys finally seems to been waking up to Otto's manipulations after so long um where he's just kind of like yeah you obviously you want your grandson on the throne and you're like when I was watching that I was like thank you Viserys you have finally started paying attention to this like what this man is up to (laughs) and then which was interesting though because like when he confronted Rhaenyra and Rhaenyra was like yeah well you're listening to Otto and then he kind of defends Otto and I was like but in the last scene you were like kind of you know so there was like that kind of weird flip back he was calling Otto out Then he was kind of defending Otto and then he removed Otto as from Hand of the King. And I thought that speech was really good when he did remove Otto because he was just basically talking about, you know, and it was five days between when his father got sick with, it seems like pretty much appendicitis. And, you know, it was like Otto was just one man in the kingdom and then his father who was Hand of the King died. And then all of a sudden, Otto became the second most powerful man in the entire country. I thought that whole entire thing about viserys finally realizing what otto had been up to this whole time uh was pretty interesting
1: yeah i agree like and i love the fact that it also kind of played on um fire and blood i mean we've Mm -hmm. talked many times about how fire and blood is not written as your typical literary narrative it is this historical document that's one macer kind of pulling from multiple sources who weren't there but kind of claim to know what happened um, and he's piecing together this historical document of the history of the Targaryens. So it's kind of up to the reader to figure out, oh, what's actually happening, what's not, what's fact, what's fiction. And I love that Viserys brought up uh, the death of his father because that is mentioned in *Fire mm-hmm. and Blood*, and it, he dies under very mysterious circumstances, similar in the way that Robert Baratheon was killed by a boar attack when he was out on a hunt and being fed wine by the Lannister kid. Yeah. Um, and Viserys brings up the fact it's like, oh, Otto, you mysteriously went from the least powerful man in Westeros yeah. to one of the most powerful seats in the entire country. I wonder how that happens. <laughs> yeah. And like, I mean, Otto could... If we kind of look back at the books, he could have. I mean, that's what I was kind of thinking. I was like, maybe mm-hmm. Otto or even Hobert, who is head of House Hightower and seems a lot more scheming yeah. than his brother, could have orchestrated that in order to put his own blood kind of on the small council. And,
2: yeah, Hobert's definitely, definitely sort of like, what are you doing here? Your, your son could be king. Like, why are you just letting this play? You like, It definitely seems like House Hightower is like, yeah, uh, we would like a king on the throne. So uh, le- let's get moving, Otto. You're right there you know, and all that kind of stuff. So it's kind of fascinating from that aspect. But like, I thought that whole speech was really great when he was just Patty. I mean, Patty's been great in this whole entire thing. And he was just really just talking about like that whole speech of just laying it out, like the history of the entire family kind of history turned on this five day period. And there's been so many different periods in Westeros history where it was just like, everything was going well until this one thing happened. Like Robert got attacked by a boar. Who the hell thought that was going to happen? Like, <laughs> <Right>. you know, <laughs> I mean, all of these things were, you know, and it's even like various other princes of Dragonstone meeting their end in a bad way. Um, and then that just totally throws the history of House Dark Aryan in an entirely new direction. So, kind of an yeah. interesting thing.
1: And, Otto's ousting as Hand of the King is such a big moment in the books. It's mm-hmm. it's also a big moment in this show. In the sequence of events in the books, Otto is ousted as Hand of the King before this whole situation with Damon mm-hmm. and Kristen Cole and the Pillow Houses. Here it plays out a little bit differently. But again, you know, fictional historical record based on unreliable sources. Who knows? Could get yeah, things wrong. That's um, true. So I, I still think it kind of works in the context of the show, but it has so many implications. Like for one, the Viserys is saying, oh, I see now that it was a very calculated move on your part, Otto, to get to marry me. Um, Or make me fall in love with your daughter. Um, So now I have questions about how Viserys is going to be treating Allison kind of moving forward from this. And then also from Allison's perspective, I mean, yes, her father is kind of really overbearing and, you know, helicopter parenting and micromanaging all of these schemes. But at the same time, like, that's her family and she no longer has her only family member at court with her all the time in Kings Landing. So mm-hmm. that brings up questions like how is this going to kind of affect her mentally? What yeah. about you what were your big takeaways from the end of this episode?
2: I mean obviously Otto has been protecting the queen cuz it's his daughter and you know now it's like she loses that kind of huge protector and so now she needs to find a new one and so we see who she winds up picking And, you know, and she winds up getting influenced by some people who are way more nefarious, as we see in some upcoming episodes. So it is interesting, like how, you know, basically Otto engineered this whole thing. But it basically also he's kind of engineering in some respects the downfall of his own house, (laughs) because, you know, as they say, you know, like Game of Thrones, you win or you die. It's like, he started playing the Game of Thrones here and it's going to get a lot more complicated from here. But, you know, like Risa Fens has been like really great at like playing it sort of close to the vest and, you know, the having that sort of sense of plausible deniability. Like, no, what are you talking about, your, your grace? I'm, I'm just trying to give you honest counsel. But I thought that scene where he went to Viserys to be like, there's been reports and, uh, Viserys has been like, and. And he's been like, you're really going to make me say this. And, and Vinicius is like, yeah, I am going to make you say this. <laughs> you're going to see, you know, if you're going to suggest it, I'm going to make you say it, you know? Um. So the whole thing was like super fascinating. But I also think like the, the whole Allison aspect of this whole, like, you know, when Viserys finds out that there's been reports of Damon and Renera in the pillow house and how, you know, Allison, who's a little bit of a goody two shoes, is like she's been doing her proper duty and being a lady. It's like she gets all her, her, her feathers in a twist about this whole thing um, or her panties in a twist about all this this thing to mix my metaphors. She realizes exactly and immediately what a danger this is to Renera, and doesn't want to believe any of this. And Renera talks a pretty good game into, you know, Renera is not above lying her ass off to get herself out of trouble, which is also something we notice about. And that, and her lie to Allison is really going to come back and bite her in the ass as well. But it's like, you're like, yeah, if you're in the same situation, you would probably lied to get out of it as well. Renera knew what she did, but she was pretty much trying not to get caught for having done it. But
1: <laughs> <laughs> I also love how, I mean... I, I have, I have some problems with the time jumps. I mm-hmm. think I understand why it's being done because there are, are a lot of material that has, you know, it, it's supposed to play out over years. Um, yeah. I find it a little disorienting sometimes. But the good thing about it is that the small council is always changing. Yeah. Like Jason Lannister. No, not Jason Lannister. Thailand. Yeah, Thailand's he's the new master of ships on the small council after Corliss kind of left and to his own devices. And it's just kind of a visual representation that like, Oh, like the game board is always changing. Like these new people are coming in who have direct influence on the King. And, All the happenings in the kingdom, and each one of them has conflicting interests, and we don't really know where their allegiances lie. And so it feels like the game is always changing, episode to episode.
2: And that, like, now, like, Renera actually has a seat at the table instead of just being the cupbearer. I did notice that, like, you know, she's sitting next to Otto at a certain point. Like, I I don't think they're still letting her talk much, but you know, she's at least not pouring wine for everybody now. (laughs) It's kind of an interesting change, a little bit of a change there.
1: Yeah. And Viserys, uh, like as a result of everything going on, is kind of unraveling even more. Like his Mm -hmm. kind of decline health wise, mentally, it's kind of moving at a faster rate, I think. And, you know, in the book, I think it's kind of perceived As Viserys was just tired of Otto, you know, bringing up question of succession. And so that's why he kind of was just like, get out of my hair, like, go, go away. I don't want to hear it anymore. Um, But in this, I love the clarification that it's really Rhaenyra who is like, well, if you want me to do this, you have to get rid of Otto. Yeah. because it just kind of plays back into the fact that Viserys is not a good king. He doesn't really make decisions um, or he doesn't like, he lets
2: things fester. Yeah. Like just like his arm.
1: Absolutely. And I
2: think that was an interesting thing that like Damon said to him, when they were having that confrontation uh, in the throne room was like, Damon's like, you're the King who cares what they're saying about your daughter. You're the damn King, you know, go pull out their tongues or whatever. Like there was a point when Viserys is like, I will take out their eyes. But like, he doesn't, doesn't really follow through on that. Cause it's like, you know, a certain King would probably just be like, you're talking about my daughter. Who's talking about my daughter. We're going to kill anyone who's talking about my daughter, you know, and there goes the rumors. Um, and so I think Damon's much more thinking of that, like, you know, hey, you're the king, like, who cares what they're saying about her? If you were a strong enough king, it wouldn't matter what they were saying about her. Um, and so I think that's sort of like Viserys's weakness kind of comes into to play on that front as well.
1: Yeah. So there are two more things to this episode that I'd love to talk about. The first mm-hmm. is this reveal that we get with Viserys's dagger, which we know to be mm-hmm. the cat's paw dagger. Um, that we see later in the events of Game of Thrones. I love how significant this object is becoming to Game of Thrones lore at large. We see Viserys heating up the stagger. And mm. he's sort of, you know, mentioning the fact that, oh, you know, this stagger this once belonged to Aegon the Conqueror. And before that, it was Aenar who had it. Um, and before that, uh, it's it's kind of hard to say. We don't really know, um, mm-hmm. but we do know from this episode that Aegon has sort of the last remaining pyromancers of old Valyria carve Aegon's so- a Song of Ice and Fire prophecy into the blade itself, and you can really only see it when you kind of heat it up. I thought that was so cool. What did you think of that? Yeah, sort of. Reveal? I
2: thought it kind of reminded me. I think of Lord of the Rings when the 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 rings got hot and you could like read what was in them. But I I love the the cat's ball dagger. I love how it's like you know because it, it it had such a key plot in Game of Thrones because it really did kick off a lot of things that went on in Game of Thrones. But like to find out that it had this whole entire history with Aegon and all of this stuff and that you know and basically how Cersei is talking to Renera like. You have been entrusted with this information. We need this prince that was promised. You are going to go get married. And you are going, it's like, you know, yeah. it's basically like, lady, I told you this for a very good reason. Enough screwing around. You are doing your duty. And that is it, you know. So, it's, like, just the fact that he's using the dagger to sort of really impress upon her. You've been messing around for too many years now. And you are going to go do your duty. And you are going to be the heir to the Iron Throne that you're supposed to be because it's way bigger than any of your petty concerns like you know this is about the potential end of the realm so I thought that was kind of interesting
1: yeah and it's right it's the fact that it's a physical reminder of this prophecy that is looming over every single Targaryen king since Aegon the Conqueror and it's the reason why you know Viserys yes maybe he carries this dagger around with him always for protection Maybe he carries it with him always because, you know, it's one of the last remaining Valyrian steel items um, Mm -hmm. since the fall of old Valyria. But it's also on him always as a physical reminder of the weight that is on his shoulders. Just a reminder Mm -hmm. of the fact that, everything I'm doing is to secure not just the realm, but the entire world, because one day winter is going to come and swallow everything up and we need to have a Targaryen yeah. on the throne.
2: It's like, that's where I like, sort of like the difference between Damon and Viserys is Damon is just focused on the strength of house Targaryen. Um, and Viserys is trying to focus on the strength of the realm to defend it from the, the long night that is to come. And I'm kind of curious, like does Damon have any idea about this at all? Like, Mm. you know, considering he was sort of the heir to Dragonstone, you would have thought that he had been, you know, or would have, you know, I mean, he saw this, his brother had this dagger. I'm assuming his father also must've carried this dagger at a certain point. Like, you know, Damon's not a dumb man. So I'm kind Mm. of curious, like, does Damon know this at all? Or is this just something that Viserys has never shared with him? Um, So I was kind of curious about that, but it is really like, you know, Viserys is thinking about the realm uh, overall and, and even like Alicent when they were having that conversation, when he was in the bathtub, it like, even when they were talking about like, you know, the crab feeders, like, is it, is it best, you know, for, for this to be, I mean, that was episode three, I think, Um, you know, what is the best thing for the realm at this point? So, you know, he, he is trying to think about things in a bigger, a bigger manner. Than Damon is um, and he does have that sort of weight on his shoulder. And I, I can see why he's angry at Rhaenyra for not like taking this weight on herself or taking her responsibilities more seriously. Cause it doesn't seem like he thinks she is at all.
1: Yeah. And um, I wrote a story mm-hmm. on this um, a few weeks ago at this point, but uh, uh, just a fun fact about this prop um, there was talk amongst the crew of using the original prop um, of the Mm Casbah Dagger from Game of Thrones for House of the Dragon. They even shipped it over um, from Ireland to use on the shoot. But then when I got here, they were like, eh... It's not really what we're looking for. We want something yeah. that's a little bit more pristine, something that's cleaner, that looks more like, you know, what the dagger was in its heyday. So they created a brand new dagger, but they still always kept it in mind that one day this dagger will be the same dagger that the Caspa assassin uses to try to kill uh, Brand, uh, brand. <laughs> brand, little brand. brand. Yeah, my God, listen. and
2: then. Daria takes it and kills the Night King with it. So it does have it, this. This dagger does have quite an interesting history. Yeah. Um, for good or for ill. So you know, it's just kind of fascinating this how how this dagger has played into so much of the history of uh, uh who is sitting on the Iron Throne and that sort of stuff. So I, I I think it's fascinating that they've just sort of taken this dagger and have turned it into they've kind of retconned it into a more important thing than it was at the time.
1: Yeah. I think. And and there's also one more thing that we're going to get um, a little bit later. We saw it briefly in the trailers um, of Alicent in this scene in the trailer played by Olivia Cook. So we know it's coming a little bit later, Mm -hmm. Um, but she takes the dagger out of Viserys's pouch right off of him and goes to attack Rainier with it for reasons that we won't get into, but it's referred commonly as sort of the eye for an eye um, Mm -hmm. scene in Fire and Blood. So yeah, the stagger is still going to be playing a prominent role moving forward after this. And then the final thing I wanted to bring up that I'd love your thoughts on, Lauren, is this very Mm -hmm. final scene that we get with Rhaenyra and the maester. He brings her- And the
2: moon tea. And the moon (laughs) tea.
1: He brings her moon tea, which is this world's abortion procedure, plan B or whatever. And he tells her that, oh, the king ordered this for you. So yeah. even after that whole- Which is th-
2: probably a sensible thing because it didn't seem like she was super concerned about what was, you know, what happened after Kristen Cole's little interaction.
1: Sure. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, absolutely. But I, mm-hmm. I also think like Allison just beforehand came to Rhaenyra's defense to the king yeah. and was like, she told me she is still Chase, that her virtue is still intact and I believe her. But clearly mm-hmm. the king didn't believe her. What did you think about yeah. this scene?
2: I think, you know, the king probably, you know, maybe he would have liked to believe her, but he was taking no chances. And I think you see, like, throughout Game of Thrones, the books and everything, it's like the moon tea does come out in several different places with, like, Jen Westerling after Rob dies. And then they pretty much make sure that Rob had no issue. So she was, like, I think forced to drink moon tea. But it is funny, just as soon as the maester walked in with it, I was like, ah, the moon tea. Someone came in with the moon tea. So, you know, maybe, maybe Viserys did want to believe her. But yeah, he's just like, yeah, I'm not taking any chances uh, with uh, something happening here that, you know, should not be, you know, you know, we wind up with a Dornish baby on the throne.
1: Yeah. Any final thoughts um, that you have on this episode that we didn't talk about?
2: Well, I think we have to talk about wig watch because I was <laughs> when I saw Matt Smith's hair in this one, because all of a sudden Damon has much shorter hair in this one. And for a while I was like looking because it like it looked the cut was much closer to Matt Smith's like normal hairstyle. And I'm like, did Matt Smith just decide to go blonde for like a week or something? Could he not get the blood of the crab feet out of his long locks? You know, so I was just like very, very like, I was like, oh, we're rocking a short do this time. Which is interesting because like in Fire and Blood and in the illustrations, a lot of the Targaryens had short hair. Um, But here it's like everyone's kind of gotten rock the long locks. So I'm kind of curious as to, like, why does Damon all of a sudden have short hair this time? So that was like my big, like, we've got to have a wig watch about this.
1: So
2: (laughs) (laughs) that's my last kind of silly discussion point. Yeah,
1: I love that Aegon the Conqueror. He has famous short hair, blonde short hair. So I was wondering if that was Damon being like i'm the new conqueror because i just conquered the stepstones for you brother yeah
2: and (laughs) that's always like the the interesting thing about like the targaryens is that like there were some black haired targaryens like Renice in the book has actually got black hair so it's just kind of an interesting like when i I look at like the decisions they made uh with um and also like Renice probably has uh, like black hair because you know her mother was a baratheon so obviously black hair is the baratheon trait uh, so it's kind of always interesting, like, like to see the decisions they make about, you know, hair and that kind of stuff. Definitely an interesting, uh, an interesting hair change of pace. So, yeah, on, on the sillier note.
1: Well, Lauren, thank you so, so much for joining me uh, to talk about episode four. I can't wait to dissect episode five through ten with you i mean (laughs) we've we've, we still got a long way to go on this journey
2: i am not planning any more intergalactic trips so i will be here for all of them so you know i'm looking forward to talking about um more of the this uh the house of the dragon
1: when we return we will be sharing excerpts from my interviews with matt smith and patty considine stay tuned How have you been? I I, I remember I was um, on set with you guys. Um, I think it was around filming of Episode Eight of House of the Dragon at the very tail end of production. What have you been up to since oh, then? Oh
3: God! I bet we all looked a bit bedraggled, didn't we, and tired, and sort of uh, all over the place. Um, I have just done a film called Star Baker, actually, uh, with Moira Clark, who is going to be Gladiol in Lord of the Rings. She's brilliant. And, um, yeah, I think it could be really great. I'm really excited about it. So you. British folk horror. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so you did not take really much of a break after House of the Dragon. You just went no, right no, into. I, I'm, I'm what's commonly
3: known as an idiot. I took a couple of weeks off and then, and then I, uh, I went straight back in and did another film. But now I think I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a, what's called the Mediterranean summer and go and spend some time in Italy or somewhere nice like that not do very much
1: no I thoroughly support that um, it's funny. <laughs> I, have, I have to say you know because of um, you know the COVID pandemic of it all simply like for me traveling to London and being able to see you all on set felt like a miracle Like that it actually happened yeah, yeah, yeah. like just given all the res- I'm, I'm like sorry we didn't get to properly say
0: hello I
3: was probably being a bit surly and moody um, as is Damon's way, um, but, um, so which, which, which scene did you watch?
1: Uh, so I spent about, um, three days there, um, it, I, I saw, um, uh, your scene in Dragonstone with Emma. I was
3: injured, yeah, I remember, yeah,
1: wow. Oh, you were, what happened?
3: I hurt my neck, yeah, I don't, anyway, yeah, but, um, wow, yeah, God, but it seems it actually doesn't seem that long ago, but it, it kind of was, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm. What, what do you sort of remember, or I don't know if you have sort of like vivid memories of that day or filming those last few episodes?
3: Well, um, oh, what do I remember about those last? Well, you know, I, I suppose there was a there was a huge scene that we all did. I suppose the the family of Targaryens and the high powers as it were, and we were sat around the dinner table. And it took like four days. And we all started to go a bit potty, to be honest. And, uh, we all started to get a bit giggly and go a bit mad because it had been like eight or nine months. And here we were, you know, still going in our wigs. And we were all kind of tired at that point. Um, we were, you know, we, it's tough. It's a long shoot. Um, it's quite physically demanding. And I I think, I think by the time you were there, we were, we were really just kind of, we we could see the finish line. Do you know what I mean? It's like the end of a marathon when you're 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 quite tired and we're nearly there.
1: Yeah, I mean, I didn't even realize that you had hurt your neck. I mean, was it particularly challenging for you towards the end of production?
3: Yes, it was actually. It was it, it that sort of became quite difficult? But we managed to get through it, um, and you know, here we are.
1: I know it must, um, feel like ages ago at this point, but uh, do you remember when, um, you even like first heard about the opportunity to join House of the Dragon?
3: I do actually, I was in Nottingham, I was at my granddad's house and, um, I was outside he's got a sort of car park opposite his house and I was, I sort of went and had a phone call with my agent out there and it and they mentioned the show that, you know, was associated to Game of Thrones and I thought, well, I don't know, it's, you know, that's been done so well, where do you, where do you really start with it? You know, with such a huge success and, um, but then I, I sort of read the first episode and, uh, I thought, I thought Damon was just a really, really brilliant character.
1: What felt brilliant about them? What did you, what stood out to you?
3: Well, yeah, there's a sort of, I suppose it's quite an odd thing to say that, that stands out, but there's a strange like, ambiguity to, to Damon. You never really know what he's thinking or what his intention is or what his ambition is and it could be one of many things. And I, I thought I thought that was quite interesting to sit with. And saved the idea that you know it was quite obviously you know, it felt quite cool playing a Targaryen as well. It's quite a sort of mad, strange family to be part of.
1: Yeah, I mean George Martin has that great line about Targaryens, like whenever one is born the gods flip a coin and the world hold, holds its breath. I mean, do you think Damon sort of leans more towards the madness side of that coin?
3: Well, it's a, that's, a, that's a great quote, actually. Yeah, probably. I mean, but, you know, I think with Damon, I think the coin's still flipping in the air and it hasn't quite hit the ground yet. Do you know what I mean? Mm. It's, 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 but I think the coin's still in slow motion and it's still, still, and until, you know, his final, his final doom. Then we'll find
1: out which side is on, kind of thing. Mm. You know, um, it's what I find so fun about a show like House of the Dragon is that, you know, you you take the source material, which is Fire and Blood, and um, you know, fans have expectations from that book about who Prince Damon is. And he comes off as this nefarious person, sometimes violent. But at the end of the day, that book is written with like, you know, multiple sources, not all of them reliable. So you don't really know who he is or who to trust. Um, Yeah. So I'm wondering, just like based off of your impression of the script, how you saw this character, like, do you feel he does kind of fit the bill of being somewhat nefarious, being somewhat violent? Or is that not true?
3: I I think I look, I think he certainly is those things, you know. There's there's no doubting that with someone like Damon. He's a bit of everything, really. But it's but as I say, I think I think I, and I'll keep that it's a very good quote you just you just gave me and I, I like the idea of this coin still going. I just he's always kind of slipping yeah, sides, I suppose, in many ways. He's in, aligning himself with his brother or is not, or with R'Nero or he's not, or, you know, on his own. You know but I think I think in many ways a lot of it is related to his... I don't even think it's about an ambition to the throne and all that I think it's I think a lot of it is about his brother yeah. um and, and and that was certainly one of the really exciting experiences for me in the show was was kind of getting to act with paddy i, I I've always admired so much and I knew he was cast before I, I I got the job And I thought oh wow what what a cool bit of interesting in casting for, for a show like this Mm.
1: yeah what was it like working with Patty like what did you get out of each other as scene partners
3: oh he's just a wonderful actor and, uh, uh, and even more wonderful of a human being but I, I must say I can say the same about Emma Darcy and Millie Alcock you know that's that's something else I think is really exciting is a bit like you did on the last show I think there'll be some wonderful performances and actors who emerge from this who have just done some great work and I'm going to go on a really wonderful journey with it. Um, and then you've got Reese Isle, and he's fantastic in it, I have to say. There's also high power, um, such a certain time, brilliant. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I mean, I've not seen any, but I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what, what, what people have done with it, because it felt interesting
1: mm. when I was there watching. I was curious if there was a specific moment where you were convinced that not only was House of the Dragon something you, that you wanted to do, but something that you felt could be really great as Game of Thrones.
3: But, uh, yeah, I mean, look, you know, I I always felt the character of Daemon was really fascinating and was a great part. Um, and um, and uh, you know, the the actors that are on board, excited about the cast, and I thought, well, look, you know, this this has a chance of being, of being of being good, but. You just never know. It's, it's with any project. You you just never know. Project like, this, are a few more eyes on it before it's come out because of the legacy that it's sort of sitting on. But um, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm a bit like you. You know, I haven't seen any of it, so I'm waiting to see how it's all been put together. Um, but I I do think there'll be some fabulous performances in it, certainly.
1: Mm. Well, I, I did see um, when I was in London on set. I did see the buck um, that you guys used to film all of the dragon oh, yeah. riding in London. Yeah, yeah. What was that experience like? That looked like so much fun.
3: Yeah, it was cool, man. You know, you're up high. You've got wind and rain and all these all these things sort of flying at you, and um, yeah, just just just. Uh, it, I mean, it's always like it's, it's like being on a bucking bronco in many ways, you know, because they've got remote controls and they're moving you around and then you've just got to respond to it accordingly. But it was cool. It was
1: good fun. What were sort of um, the best practices or best tips for riding that thing?
3: The best tips?
1: Yeah, for riding the the buck.
3: That I got or that I can give?
1: Um, either. I mean, were there sort of like certain safety things that you had to abide by? No, no, not
3: really. I mean, you know, just don't fall off. like <laughs> me. Mean. Don't fall off. Stay on it. Hold on, and kind of look like you're cruising through the air, really. But it's, it's I mean, it's almost like a motorbike. When you lean one way, you go the other. Do you know what I mean? So you're, you're like balancing yourself out with the weight of the, with the weight of the dragon.
1: Mm. You also have um, a lot of really great costumes as Damon, and you know Damon carries this famed Valyrian steel sword called Dark Sister um, that comes with a lot of history. Yeah. Were those sort of additional pieces that you used to inform your performance?
3: Well, I have to say, I, I think that Yanni, the costume designer, just did such... Sorry, that, that might a I think that Yanni, the costume designer, did such a brilliant job. I think the costumes really have a great sense of opulence and appearance um, and regality, actually. And, uh, yeah, I mean course these things inform what you do because they inform how you stand, they inform how you approach people, they inform you know, it's a bit like wearing a corset, I suppose. <laughs> um and um yeah, yeah, so they did obviously. I mean I don't know how they informed it. I think these things are sometimes instinctual, but I'm sure that it certainly did.
1: You know, I was listening um, back over the audio from my chats with Ryan and Miguel, and both of them are so steeped um, in the mythology of this world and this show. How deep did you go with the lore of this show?
3: Well, hugely deep, to be honest. I, You know, the the, the scripts and the book were not of a sort of Bible to go off. I, I, I sort of took it as I saw it, really, and and tried to... Uh, add the things to Damon that I thought were interesting, and yeah, be as be as creative with it as possible. But I, you know, I'm I'm, I'm not a sort of huge, uh, you know, I haven't read the books and stuff, the original books. Mm.
1: What were some of those things that you wanted to add to Damon?
3: Oh gosh, I can't even remember. I I I, I, don't, I just think um uh because I almost don't want to give it away, it's strange. Without being helpful, I don't know. I just sort of do it, and then it comes out, and it, those things happen. It wasn't; it's not it's almost not that that deliberate of a process. Um, I, was, I guess I was really interested in his, in his relationship with his brother, and that was a huge sort of pull of the series for me.
2: I thought I thought that was always going to be a really fascinating story,
3: just to feel that.
1: How did you view that relationship between Damon and Viserys?
3: How did I do it?
1: Or how did you view it? Like, what is, what is that relationship for you? Oh, it's, oh, it's really complicated, actually. Um,
3: because, you know, there's sort of... Like, it, well, but, I mean, also, it's it, it, I, I think it's complicated because it's familiar and normal in many ways. It's very brotherly. Um, and like any brother, you know, like any kind of brotherly relationship, there are different power dynamics and one time one is in control, then the other's in control. And, um, you know, hopefully you'll you'll feel a sense of history and brotherhood when you watch it. How
1: are you doing, Paddy? Me? I'm not too bad at all. Do you remember um, when you first got the opportunity to join House of the Dragon or even like when you first heard about it? Yeah, I did. Um,
0: my um, agent contacted me. I was on, I was doing a little indie film in Ireland and I was on some sort of forced lockdown by then, even though I used to sneak out and walk, walk around the coast all the time. Um, and I was just sort of, I, I got the call through then. And, um, you know, my agent said that they were interested in me for this uh they called it a Game of Thrones prequel, House of the Dragon. And I was like, okay, you know, I'm into that. And I spoke to Miguel and Ryan and they said it was for the role of the king. And I mean, okay. And you know, with respect, I get offered work um, to work with some really great people and, and people want me to be in their projects. And it's all very exciting. And then I get the script and, a lot of times I'm really disappointed because there's there's not a lot in there. There's not a lot of character and there's not a lot to, to really work with. And it's almost like people are fans of yours. So they're just happy to have you on board in any capacity. So they'll offer you the, the smallest part, but, you know, jump up and down because they've got you. And I'm like, well, I'm a bit tired of that. You know, I, I want to actually get my teeth into something. Um, and so when I read the scripts for House of the Dragon, my first feeling was one of relief and I was quite sort of blown away because I thought wow they've actually they're offering me a part this is great he's a really important and pivotal character in the story and there's something to really sort of you know put my chops into if you like so um, I was flattered that they came to me with the part and like all a lot, it happens every now and again with some parts you just read it and it sort of leaps off the page and I saw qualities in the character of Viserys that I thought I could really uh, uh, relate to and work with and strengthen. I saw all the you know, characteristics within him, all the toil and conflict and, and the sort of love, really. He's like a, he's a sort of man who's king, but he, he's not, uh, he shouldn't really be a king because he's not a natural leader, but he's a, just a good man. And that's not the qualities you need to rule that kingdom. <laughs> you yeah. know? So he's a beautiful character. And I was just flattered that there was dimensions to him and things that I could, uh, you know, go to work with, which was great.
1: One of the funnest aspects of this show to me is sort of like it's setting the record straight almost on a Targaryen history. Because the book, there's so many conflicting sources of information and you don't really know what is truth, what isn't. Um, so I was curious because like we kind of learned some things in the books of King Viserys. Um, he feels like a benevolent man, like he wants to maintain the peace in his house and his kingdom. Um, yeah. But I'm curious how you saw King Viserys since the show is kind of really kind of setting the record straight on this story.
0: Well, without I mean, there comes a point I got a, I got a really lovely compliment for, um, from George R. R. Martin via Ryan and Miguel. Which I'm a bit loath to repeat because it sounds a bit naff, but it it was great and it filled me with a lot of confidence. Um, I, 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 I'm, I'm as an actor, I'm given these materials and I just have to give my version of what I who I think Viceroy is. So I made some choices about that character that maybe weren't on the page, but I, I think some you know it's a journey making something. Sometimes they were the right choices, sometimes I wasn't quite sure, but. I think I made him a fully fleshed out character and he has dimensions. And and as much as Viserys is a good man trying to keep the peace, he still has the dragon inside him. Mm. And, And that's something that I wanted to bring out at certain points He's a tragic man. I don't know what I can reveal, you see, at the minute, Nick. So I'm, I'm treading on sort of eggshells with what I can and can't say about the character. book. Oh. I think the mantra we had for him was that he's a good man, bad king. And, oh. you know, because he, he just wants to please people and keep the peace. He doesn't want war. He has this hangover from Juharis, who was a peacetime king. But also Viserys uh, has an ego. He's got a great tragedy in his life, but also there's a part of him that's going. How am I going to be remembered in hundreds of years? I mm-hmm. won't be remembered as anything. They don't remember peaceful kings. They don't remember good people. They remember warriors. They remember tyrants. Mm-hmm. And so his ego definitely conflicts with those things as well. And he explains to R- Rhaenyra very early on that that Iron Throne is the most dangerous seat in the realm. Um, because he understands the politics of, of what it means to be king, and he understands what the throne does to people's egos, particularly the people around him. He understands the game of thrones. Now, I don't know. I took that knowledge in with me because it was my knowledge from the show. Mm-hmm. But I, When I played the character, I always had that in the back of my mind. That there's a possibility that people are conspiring around you at all times And it's absolutely so important that you find the anchors, the people that you can really, really trust. And can you really trust them? So it's a difficult
1: life being the king. I'm so glad um, you called him a tragic figure, because that was exactly my impression when I read the book. It seems like he wants to do the right thing, but there are constant political forces always trying to manipulate him and manipulate the situation. I get a sense from you that that's still kind of true in the show.
0: Yeah, that's still in there. No matter what he tries to do, he he can't please everybody and and people are trying to force him to war. And as a result, his reputation suffers because people perceive him as being weak and people undermine him, you know? So he's dealing with all of this, but he holds something in his kind of conscience, if you like, in his soul, that's about the greater picture of the uh, future of mankind Mm. and it comes from a dream, not that he had, but it comes from a dream that speaks about the, the the kind of almost like the fall of man. Um, So I have to be very careful what I reveal, but it's, uh, I don't want to get told off before I've started all this, but yeah, he's got a lot of things weighing on him and um, he has a lot of faith because he understands that there is a greater picture and um, he believes, he believes it. He believes in dreamers. He believes in dreams. He believed that dream, a dream saved, you know, uh, Valaria f- from the doom. You know, saved the Targaryens. So he's very much steeped in that sort of uh, idea that uh, there's an almost mysticism about him as well, a faith about around him as well, that he has to do the right thing despite how his reputation suffers or how he's perceived.
1: Do you remember getting to set for the first time and and seeing this? My like throne that you had to sit on and act around
0: <laughs> i remember the first day going to set and looking up those stairs and just going oh man oh wow this is it i was excited i must admit i was excited and the first thing i did of course was walk up them stairs and sit on it and just think like, oh, this is amazing. It was definitely because I love I loved the show, you know, just doing that. I suppose it's when someone, like when someone chooses their lightsaber or something, or meets Darth Vader or whatever in, in that other universe. I'm just a bit like, oh, okay, this is great. And I did get a bit like if someone was sitting on it, I was a bit like, what are you doing on there, mate? Come on. Up you get. Go and sit somewhere else. <laughs>
1: That's the king. What was it like actually maneuvering around it and like acting? Because uh, like, I mean, I remember the te- the tennis balls stick out in my mind because yeah. Miguel was saying that like so many people like just kind of scratch themselves on it.
0: Yeah, I didn't get any injuries from it as as Paddy, but Viserys does. That's another story. But like, um, he's actually suffering from like, a form of leprosy, and he's, he's suffering, his like body is deteriorating, his bones are deteriorating, so he's not actually old. He's, he's, he's still a young man in there. He's not such a sort of an old man. He's just unfortunately got this thing that's, that's kind of taken over his body, mm. and it, it becomes a metaphor for being king and, and the stress and strain that it puts on you, you know, and what it does to you physically, what it does to you mentally yeah man I just now i had no, I had no problems like that with it. I think it's just that when you sit on that throne i think I think as an actor, you just don't want to sit there and fall into the traits of you know I'm the king, so I'll rest my hand on my chin and do any of that shit. I was just always aware of like don't fall into any cliches when you're up there and uh, you know, but when you sit on that throne, there is a certain way that you have to present yourself um especially, you know, the, 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 in the time of the Targaryens all those years ago. So, um, you know, my biggest challenge was just just trying to avoid the cliches, you know, the sort of gloved hand and making a fist and all that kind of shite. I was trying to just keep it interesting <laughs> for myself up there. You know, and choosing the times where you've got to be a king, you know, you've got to be forceful, you've got to be a ruler and just, yeah. uh, you know, picking my moments for that. But I thought it was great. I loved it.
1: Yeah, I'll make this my last question. I don't know if this is true. I, I think one of the publicists actually on set mentioned this to me that you took um, a method approach for this role. Is that true? Is that what they told you? I'm a method actor. Um,
0: <laughs> I, you know, no. I I I I, it, I just committed to playing him. I just committed to him. Um, but I'm not. I'm not a person. Okay, when it's action, yes, I do. And when I turn up. Despite all the back behind the scenes footage that's going to turn up of me laughing and messing about um you know you you take it seriously when the time is right, so I just committed really and i and you know like i said i had I had ideas for the character um and and I guess I was just committed and I wanted to be, I wanted it to be as 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 honest as I could make it um so in that respect, was I a method actor? No, I I committed to playing him, I I um fully. Um, but method is a very, very sort of precarious thing to me because I think we've heard legends of these great actors who are method, but I think some younger actors, including actors of my generation, haven't fully understood the the method and they've bastardized it. And, and all, what it leads to is sort of weird like or bad behavior on set <laughs> and yeah. i'm like it does, just because you call yourself a meth actor it doesn't mean that you can be an asshole to everybody which is right. usually the case or suck the moisture out of the room that's just my interpretation i just committed to him you know when it was cut i wasn't in character anymore when i rocked up to work it's not but when we get to set yeah you've got to commit and that's what i did but I really admire actors that who, because I, I, I've directed myself and I give actors the space to do whatever they need to do, as long as they're respectful of other people. And uh, I, I admire actors that can just do that, take themselves up into a corner if need be. You know, sometimes the tone needs to be right on set to do something if it's something intimate or delicate. Or, but you know, I just committed,
1: and I hope it. I hope it paid off. Thank you again to Matt Smith and Patty Considine for joining us this week. And that's it for this episode of West of Westeros. If you liked what you heard, follow, rate the podcast, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. To keep the conversation going, follow Entertainment Weekly on all socials, at EW on Twitter, and at Entertainment Weekly everywhere else. You can also tag us at at Nick A. Romano and at Morglar.
2: This episode of West of Westeros is hosted by Nick Romano and Lauren Morgan. Produced by Chanel Johnson, Sammy Junio, Nick Romano, and Lauren Morgan. Edited by Michael Classic. Full episode transcripts are available at EW.com.
1: New episodes of West of Westeros come every Sunday, right after the episodes of House of the Dragon air on HBO and stream on HBO Max. Stay tuned.